welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Thursday 6th of April with me, Ian Welsh. I spoke this week with Oxfam America's Matt Hamilton, writer of the latest in Oxfam's Behind the Brands report series titled Moving the Middle, which benchmarks seven of the world's biggest agribusinesses. He shared some of the report's main findings and recommendations, and that's coming up shortly. First though, it's time for some sustainable business news. It is perhaps an indication of the maturing of the conversations around business tackling emissions and the route to a net zero position that some of the focus is shifting from whether or not companies have such plans to the credibility of their ambition. A new piece of research from financial services provider EY says that of the 78 companies listed on the London Stock Exchange's FTSE 100 that have public net zero by 2050 intentions, the majority do not have robust interim goals or other plans to drive them forward. EY analysed the climate strain strategies of the companies against the UK's Transition Plan Task Force, which was set up to provide companies and other organisations with best practice guidelines. EY says that the most commonly omitted details are business planning adaptation around finances and operational processes. Only five companies were found by EY to comply with the task force's recommendations. The UK government had announced in late 2021, around the Glasgow COP26 meetings, that big companies in high-emitting sectors would be the first to be mandated to produce their net zero transition plans. When this mandate will come into force is unclear, with a decision not expected until the second half of 2023. The EU has finalised its draft energy directive, with the headline target of renewables accounting for 42.5% of the bloc's energy mix by 2030. This doubling of the current proportion of renewables is in line with the EU's target of a net reduction of greenhouse gas emissions of 55% by 2030. Also in the directive are provision for faster planning processes for renewable energy projects and targets for buildings emissions. Some EU member states had been pushing for a 45% renewables target by 2030, others preferred to stick at the previously agreed 40%. In the end, a halfway compromise was agreed. There was also agreement on how hydrogen produced using low-carbon nuclear power would be treated under the directive. There was some concern that the revised directive will allow for continued use of biofuels from soy and palm oil, with associated deforestation risks. The European Parliament had called for an immediate phase-out of the palm oil and soy-derived fuels, but this was watered down to a review by the European Commission into soy and an assessment of the pace that palm oil can be removed from the fuel mix. European food retailer Aldi has announced an ambition for all of its UK fresh produce to be certified to the LEAF, linking environment and farming, label by the end of 2023. The LEAF scheme is one of the biggest certification schemes for farmers in the world, with programmes for fruit and vegetables, other arable crops and livestock. The scheme is aiming to cover 85% of UK-grown fruit and veg by 2026. And Aldi was among the big UK food retailers signing up to a new Net Zero Collaboration Action Plan, which will be facilitated by WWF and RAP. Lidl, Sainsbury's, Tesco, Waitrose, Morrison's, The Co-op and Marks and & Spencer are the others involved in the scheme that aims to standardise approaches to carbon measurement. Currently, the brands use a variety of methods, with common suppliers typically being asked for the same information in a variety of slightly different ways. Under the new plan, the retailers will work with their main common suppliers using RAP's Scope 3 Emissions Measurement Protocols. The retailers also intend to collectively identify and address challenges that are too complex to be tackled unilaterally. What to do with post-consumer waste, particularly plastic waste, is a complex challenge. The practice of developed economies shipping waste to be processed and recycled in other parts of the world has been around for some time. A row over so-called waste colonialism has been picked up by news non-profit Grist, reporting that US cities, including Phoenix and Arizona, which recently hosted the Super Bowl, are boasting green credentials because they are sending large quantities of plastic waste to facilities in Mexico rather than trying to cut down on the waste in the first place. The plastics industry in the US has been coming under increasing criticism 
criticism for continuing to push for ever more recycling in the face of skyrocketing amounts of plastic waste, particularly using materials that are not typically part of mainstream domestic recycling programs. There are also concerns that the increasing shipment of plastic waste from the US to Mexico risks contravention of the Basel Convention that regulates the trades in plastic waste. In particular, it is against the provisions of the Convention for Waste Across Borders unless it is free of contamination and destined to be recycled in a sound manner. For example, exports of bales of PET plastic that contain more than 2% of other plastic, paper or anything else would be banned. The ride will no doubt rumble on, but whatever the outcomes, the truth remains that we just can't recycle our way out of the plastics waste crisis. The latest report in Oxfam's Behind the Band series was launched this week, this time assessing the global agribusiness sector. A couple of days ago, I spoke with report author and Oxfam America's Senior Advisor for Inclusive Value Chains, Matt Hamilton. Matt, you're the lead author on the Moving the Middle report, which is Oxfam's latest Behind the Brands assessment of the global agribusiness sector. So what's the purpose of the report? Oxfam's had a long-term focus on food systems and ensuring that human rights are upheld for food producers and their communities. That focus includes the global agribusiness sector, which we see as key to deliver on more sustainable and just food systems. We conducted our first scorecard in 2018. We had a second one in 2020, and now this is the third edition. We completed the research in 2022 and then published it this week in 2023. Oxfam's agribusiness scorecard is a snapshot. It's looking at where companies stand when it comes to their policies, their implementation plans on five issue areas. So we have women's economic empowerment, land, climate, small-scale producers, and then transparency and accountability. Oxfam selected seven companies, Archer Daniels Midland, ADM, Barry Calibo, Bungie, Cargill, Louis Dreyfus, Olam Group, and Wilmar. And we picked those companies due to their size, their scale of sourcing volumes and key commodities like cocoa, sugar, soy, rice, palm oil, among others. How are the role and impact of these big companies changing then? Big agribusinesses have always been a key part of the food system. I think what's changing now is that we have all of these intersecting crises that are really amplifying some of the cracks in the food system. We have the climate crisis, so more and more erratic weather, strain on resources, ecosystems, increasing displacement of people due to drought, increasing risks of famine. We have a cost of living crisis with inflation. Food prices are spiking. The conflict in Ukraine is having ripple effects in the grain markets. Food input prices on things like fertilizer have increased substantially. So. I feel like supply chain issues have really become more mainstreamed in everyday conversation. And as a result, there's maybe more scrutiny on actors like the global agribusiness sector that have traditionally been out of the limelight. So it's becoming harder and harder to just ignore the role of these huge players. What are the headline results from the benchmark? What are the positives and not so positive takeaways? The findings show pretty mixed results overall. The average scores are still well below what Oxfam would consider necessary to sustain a just food system. The average scores in each of the themes never reached above 40%, so that's pretty disappointing. That's in this third edition. While the sector has shown some improvement over the four years analyzed, I think that there's still a lot of work to be done. We've seen the divide between the leaders and laggards grow. 
most companies at the bottom of Oxfam's initial findings in 2018 really only showed modest improvements by 2022. We did see some notable improvements in public commitments. Barry Calibo, Cargill, and Olam are now all three signatories of the UN Women's Empowerment Principles, the UN WEPs. We'd obviously like to see all of the other agribusinesses follow suit, but I think that that's a pretty big win to have those big players signing on to the UN WEPs. But overall, I think the sector really needs to do more to integrate sustainable business practices and improve. You focus on some specific areas, as you mentioned, women's empowerment, land rights and land inequality, farmer equity for small-scale producers, and transparency and accountability in this report. So let's consider each in turn. Women's empowerment, what were the main findings there? I mentioned the UN WEPs. That was one area where we saw some companies signing on. The themes are broken down in a few different ways. So we look at first, what is a company's awareness in their public facing communications? Are they talking about issues related to women, women farmers, women in farming communities? And then we're also looking at engagement. So are they making commitments? Are they shifting business practices? And then beyond just those commitments, are they also incorporating transparent, measurable implementation plans, regularly reporting? And then finally, we want to look at our companies speaking out against systemic drivers of injustice, of inequality to drive change. So in the women theme, we measured our companies disclosing, for example, how many women farmers are in certain supply chains. Are they looking at an implementation plan on how to improve how they're reaching out to women farmers or women in farming communities? So those are the sorts of things that we measured in the women theme. Because it, so many companies now are showing in their own research how important women farmers are in developing farmer incomes and farm productivity. So it's really great that you were focusing on that. What about land rights and land inequality? What did you find there? We saw pretty mixed results again. There was a pretty big divide between leaders and laggards in that theme. We're looking at things like what are their policies when it comes to FPICs? So that's free prior and informed consent. Um, when it comes to land, are they disclosing land banks in their supply chain? And if they don't actually own land themselves, are they requiring their suppliers to also disclose land banks? Those are the sorts of things we measured when it came to land. Farmer equity for small-scale producers, what were the findings there? Again, we also saw a pretty big divide between leaders and laggards, but overall, Oxfam is not seeing enough action when it comes to small-scale producer equity. When it comes to living income, I think that's an area where companies really need to improve. We set a pretty high bar or set a higher bar. In this edition, we looked at the living income community of practices definition of living income, which we consider to be the most robust definition. And only one company, Olam, has commitments when it comes to that definition. Other companies have talked about living income, but their definitions are, in our view, a little bit weaker and need to be improved. But overall, I think the sector needs to make some pretty drastic improvements when it comes to farmer equity. And transparency and accountability, what did you find there? We also saw pretty mixed results in that theme. There were some notable improvements. I think one of the biggest improvements overall was ADM. They went from a 0% in 2018 to 41%, which is still a low score, but it's a pretty notable improvement. And I think it's a good example to show where companies are doing a little bit more when it comes to transparency and accountability. We have seen companies increasingly publish more information in terms of how they're addressing human rights issues, 
who's responsible within a company to address those issues. You're seeing more and more demand from investors to understand how companies are addressing human rights, how they're mitigating risks. So we have seen some improvements, but again, overall, the theme was pretty low with an average score below 40%. Yes, it does feel that companies are engaging increasingly on, on human rights issues. There are regulatory changes, of course, which may be driving that, but it is gratifying to see that there is more engagement on human rights issues. So in the past, you've also benchmarked on climate change, but not this time. Why is that? We decided not to score companies on climate in this edition for a few reasons. As I mentioned before, scorecards are really a snapshot in time, and a lot has changed since our first edition in 2018. I think one of the main things that has changed is just the urgency around action that's needed. We really need companies to step it up when it comes to climate change. And so we decided not to include the climate scores in this report, partially also because of new guidance that's come out. The Science-Based Targets Initiative just came out with their flag guidance, so that's forest, land, and agriculture just last year. And so we're really looking to companies to incorporate flag and other guidance when it comes to setting climate targets. We also expect companies to take into consideration guidance from the UN. So the UN high-level expert group on net zero emissions put out new guidance for non-state entities. So that would include companies. And Oxfam plans to publish an independent evaluation on climate targets in the global agribusiness sector sometime around COP28 this year. So we hope that gives the sector some time to make their updated commitments public and incorporate some of that guidance I was talking about earlier. Did your research for this report throw up any surprises? I think it did. I did mention that averages overall were pretty low, but you did see some pretty drastic progression when it came to different themes for companies. Some of the notable examples include Wilmar going from 8% on the women theme in 2018 to 65% in 2020. So that's a pretty big jump. And I also mentioned ADM going from 0% to 41% on transparency and accountability. Again, that was a little bit of a low score. I think on the flip side, though, we saw that the bottom performers really hardly changed at all. On land, Bungie went from 3% in 2018 to just 11% on 2022. So that's really showing us that Bungie and other performers that are at the bottom of our benchmarking really need to do more when it comes to public-facing policies and implementation plans. The fact that you've demonstrated or you've shown the improvements that companies can make shows that when they focus and really drive these things forward, significant progress can be made in a relatively short period of time. You conclude the report with some recommendations for local agribusinesses, for downstream companies, and for investors. What do you recommend, firstly, for global agribusiness? It's not enough for a company to say they're doing the right thing. They need to show it. And so what we really want to see from global agribusinesses is stepping up the public commitments that they are making. When it comes to different themes, I think on women, I mentioned the UN WEPs. We have three of the agribusinesses out of the seven that we examined that have signed on to the UNWEPs. We'd ideally like to see all seven sign on. When it comes to land, we'd really want to see more action when it comes to implementing FPIC and their supply chains. Climate, we want to see more public commitments that are measurable and time-bound, taking into consideration SBTI's flag guidance, for example, small-scale producers. This one, we really urgently need the global agribusiness sector to adopt living income commitments. Farmers are really struggling to keep up with high cost of inputs. 
And as I mentioned before, we just have one company, Olam, that has set a living income target that we would consider in line with best practice. On transparency and accountability, I think we need to see more action around the UN guiding principles, also more action on grievance mechanisms, making sure that they're accessible to everyone and every single supply chain that a company is sourcing in. And similarly, we need to see more transparency when it comes to supply chain traceability and supplier information. That's obviously taking place in certain supply chains. I think cocoa is a notable one, but then there's more work that needs to be done in other supply chains like soy. Yet again, I think you highlight the fact that it can be done when focus is made on a particular area. It's a question of focusing on everything and improving the things across the board. Good to see that progress can be made. What about for downstream companies then? What are the recommendations you have for them? For downstream companies, we know that they're already engaging their suppliers and we would recommend that they look at the results from Oxfam's scorecard and continue to engage suppliers, but particularly on where you see disconnects between your own policies and what you're seeing from global agribusinesses. If a company is trying to implement its own priorities, its own policies, it's hard to do that without suppliers who are following suit. So we'd really recommend that downstream companies continue to engage suppliers, but look at where those discrepancies are and understand your risks there. And what about for investors? I think similarly for investors, obviously there's more and more scrutiny around human rights issues, climate issues. So looking at where these suppliers are when it comes to public disclosures is really key, really important. Certainly around climate, there's more regulatory scrutiny. So I think that investors need to make sure that they're paying attention to where global agribusinesses that lie in their portfolios, where they are in terms of policy. Any conclusions more generally from the report? Scorecards are really a snapshot. We know that things can change over time. I think it's important to note, though, that scorecards, and particularly this one, are really looking at policy, and then they're looking at implementation plans. And this is, again, anything that's available in the public sphere. What sets it apart is that the scorecard doesn't really look at the impact of those policies. So I think that that's an important caveat. The way that you get to looking at the impact of those policies, right, is through things like worker interviews, community human rights impacts assessments. And that's something that I think Oxfam is increasingly looking to do in the future. Listeners, it's very much worth a read. We'll put a link in the podcast description so you can go to the report. But Matt Hamilton, Oxfam America, thank you very much. Thank you. The Innovation Forum website is, as ever, the place to go for all the usual analysis and interviews. Look out for more reflection from participants at the Responsible Sourcing and Ethical Trading event held in London last week. And don't forget, as we highlighted in our Monday briefing earlier this week, now is a great time to register to attend Innovation Forum's Future of Food Conference in Amsterdam on the 3rd and 4th of May. If you are very quick, you can still save €200 on event passes. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next week, goodbye.